TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm Mihir. Can you believe the summer is almost here? Oh, my God. You know what that means, right? That means stories we follow and many, many recommendations. Exactly right. We're going to go out with a bang, Felix. Yes. <laughs> Part of the fun of this podcast is when we get to talk about what is on our mind. And for the next couple of months, we'll have to do that over walks, but we won't be doing that over the podcast. So this is our chance to talk about the stories we want to watch. And then, of course, after the episode with the stories we will watch, we have even better, <laughs> lots and lots of ideas how to fill everyone's time including recommendations, what to read, what to eat, what to watch, everything you ever wanted, plus much more. But the only sad news about the summer is we are going to miss our listeners. Yeah. It's yeah. always so fantastic to interact with them in all different kinds of ways. In the interim, if you all would love to leave a rating or a review, that's fantastic. Yeah, we would love that. And we look forward to being back with you in the fall. So, stories we will follow. Let's do it. Excellent. Stories we will follow this summer. What do you have for us, Mihir? Okay, so I'm sure everybody wants to geek out this summer. And <laughs> if you want to geek out in the world of business, I think you want to be thinking about inventories. <laughs> oh, God, how exciting. <laughs> My pulse just shut up exactly. quite a bit. <laughs> exactly, Felix. So look, it's a very curious economic time, and inventories turn out to be really, really interesting and important. So first... Think about Walmart and Target, who announced their earnings a couple of weeks ago, and they posted that their inventory levels rose by more than 30% each. Oh, wow. And this is in a quarter. In a quarter. Yeah. Now, wow. that is astronomic. So these yeah. are two of the best management teams for managing inventory, and they got it so wrong that inventory levels rose by 30%. So what's the issue? What did they not see? Well, so that's the question. They said, basically, they bought all the wrong stuff <laughs> and they didn't buy the right stuff. So there were shortages and they bought the wrong stuff. So the reason this is so important is it is a real finger on the pulse of the consumer mm -hmm. and on thinking where the consumer is and whether we are heading, in fact, for a recession. 
interestingly, in aggregate, inventory to sales ratios, which is kind of what you care about, is actually not that high. Wow, really interesting. So can I ask one question? We had these swings between products and services. During COVID, because we couldn't consume services, everybody swung to products. And I guess now part of that is going back and that we're booking travel. Exactly. So is it that they just misestimated how many products we will buy? Or did they literally order the wrong things? Well, so what they have said is the wrong things. Oh, But okay. the concern is that it's just too much. Oh. And that actually the consumer is weakening and they have not just the wrong stuff, but they have too much of everything. So which will be worse? From a broader perspective, if the consumer is really weakening, especially the low-end consumer is really, really weakening, that's a good sign of a recession. So yeah. that yeah, would yeah. be more problematic. Yeah. If they just got the wrong stuff for the wrong quarter, that's just a mistake. Yeah. It'll be lots of markdowns, but it won't be something really structural. The concern is that there's something structural going on and that the shift happened so fast that if Walmart and Target got caught flat-footed, you can imagine what's going to happen to other people. Oh, so I think just watching inventory levels and the great thing about business and the economy is you can follow it in a fancy way, but you can also, when you go to stores, mm -hmm. just look what's going on. Yeah. Look at the discounting, the frequency <laughs> yes. and the intensity of it. So it's a really fun thing to watch over the summer. And maybe you can get some savings as well, Felix. So that's my first story to watch. Stock up on bikinis. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you got, Felix? So a story that I'm going to be watching is the performance of Varo Bank. So Varo is one of these neobanks, one of the really prominent ones in the U.S. because it's one of the few neobanks that actually has a banking license. Oh, That nice. was a major undertaking. It took three years, cost $100 million. So it's just really complicated to become a bank. But they did it successfully. They raised $500 million last year, were valued just shy of $3 billion. And then their Q1 filing showed a burn rate of about $80 million or so. Wow. And they said, if things continue the way they have in the past, they might run out of money by year's end. <laughs> in all fairness, the CEO walked back the comments a little bit. Mm -hmm. The argument was the burn rate actually includes discretionary investments that you don't have to make. Right. They did reduce headcount already. But in part, I will follow it closely because it speaks to this bigger issue about the performance of neobanks. I mean, they've all piled into lending, have built up lending operations, have literally nothing to show for it, no profitability from lending. All the income that they have comes from interchange and fees. And if you look at the 25 largest neobanks, only two of them are profitable. Right. Compared to the quote-unquote, traditional digital banks. So think of someone like Ally. What is it exactly that a neobank like Varo has to offer? Right. And in fact, now when you look at the details of the statistics, you see that the customer segment that they attract is quite different and has, I think, pretty deep implications for the business model, but not implications that are positive. So Ally Bank customers are financially healthier. They often bring with them significant deposits that then keep low the cost of funding. Right. And the neobanks had to work much more on this fringe. I'm not going to charge you fees. There's not going to be overdraft. Yeah. And as a result, 
on average, their annual fee income is roughly 50% of their customer acquisition cost. Wow. So you better hope that customers turn out to be super loyal. And there's really no reason to believe that you would be. That is a great story to watch for many reasons. One is I think this neobank part is fantastic and thinking about what's happening on the credit side. But the larger issue you're raising, Felix, to my mind, is burn rates for the startup world and for newly public companies. <laughs> yes. In a way, the good news is people raised, depending on how you think about it, the good news is that people raised a lot of money in the last two years. Yeah. And if they can cut expenses, they can take their cash balances and go to like, mm -hmm. I've heard estimates of some of the healthier ones having 24 months of burn. Which is amazing. Yeah. But we're going to come up against that. That's kind of a theoretical number. But once you start to approach it, all kinds of bad, weird things happen inside these companies. Yeah. So the larger question of burn rates in the startup world, especially in the neobanks, is totally fascinating. That's a great story to watch. Actually, Felix, my other story to watch is a related one, oh, which okay. is, I think the other really interesting thing to watch is consumer credit and just understanding oh, what's uh -huh. going on with the consumer. So part of it is like this inventory story. But the other part of it, the really good news story, is we don't see any real deterioration in credit conditions. And so the thing to watch is what happens to consumer credit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting if you go through the segments. So on credit cards, things are better than they were pre-pandemic and still are better really? than they were pre-pandemic. Yeah. This is a reflection of the fiscal stimulus? It's partly the stimulus and people being a little bit more conservative. So we have not seen huh. average balances take up past pre-pandemic levels. We actually see people paying off their balances a little bit more than they did pre-pandemic. On mortgage land, we also don't see delinquencies that are rising. So even in personal loans, we don't really see delinquencies rising. The one place where we see something interesting, and I think the place to watch, is auto loans. Oh. You might remember used car prices went through the roof and car oh, prices yeah. went through yeah, the yeah. roof. Yeah. So now the average new auto loans in the last two years has been massively higher. And so the monthly payments are quite a bit higher and delinquency rates, guess what, have started oh. to come up. Yeah, yeah. And so if we're trying to figure out what's going to happen in the economy the broader issue is not tech valuations. The broader issue is, is there something going wrong in the credit system? Uh -huh. And are consumers deteriorating? Your story about a lot of these fintech players is one piece of that puzzle, which is on personal loans. Uh -huh. But the broader health of the banking system, which everybody thinks is in great shape, it really will depend with the stimulus kind of gone away, whether credit starts to deteriorate. Yeah. And I think auto loans is the place I'm going to be looking to figure that out. How do you want me to think about the role of inflation in that context? Because the story people generally tell now is that, yes, wages are going up because it's a tight labor market, but it's actually not quite good enough for many people to make up for the fact that prices are rising very quickly. Shouldn't that show up? It should show up. But it hasn't shown up yet. It hasn't, but this is when I think it will show up. Uh -huh. Again, we've had these stimulus checks. People have been running down those balances. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful report that TransUnion does, which kind of puts it all together in a really good place. Okay. <laughs> I think in the second quarter, when that report comes out, we're going to see if people have had to start to make really hard choices and start to become delinquent in a new way. Yeah. A part of me in these kinds of situations always worries about that we are in one of these economic conditions where 
it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. So everybody worries about the fact that we might be in a recession. We talk about the recession endlessly. And then sure enough, if everyone is a little more careful than they used to be, maybe a little more careful than even the economy warrants, yeah. then we end up in a place where we don't want to end up. Because you still can tell a story that the economy is incredibly strong. Exactly. That <laughs> wages go up, that things have never been better. But for some reason, this is not a story we choose to tell. And we choose to tell a story that is much more cautionary. And I don't know sometimes, does that have to do with the kinds of stories that get clicks in the media. Exactly. Does this have to do with, I'm telling you something that you should really pay attention to and uh, feel good stories, not something that requires action. It's strange to me how you can describe the same economy in so complete opposite terms, but the stories that I read are not very mixed. They're mostly negative. Right, and that's why you know, we're geeking out on data. This is why data is important, <laughs> yes. right? Because I think things like consumer credit, things like inventories, things like these underlying data, that's what we got to look to. Because if you follow the narrative, Felix, yeah. there's a dominant narrative, like the world is coming to an end. And especially yeah. when financial markets <laughs> collapse in the way they've been collapsing, then it just adds to that. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Yeah. And so watching the data really carefully this summer, I think is going to be a really fun piece of what happens. Here. Fascinating. Oh my God, half my summer's full already. So many good <laughs> stories to follow. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, what else are you watching, Felix? I'm watching Dolly 2. <laughs> And no, it's not a movie. <laughs> it's an artificial <laughs> intelligence program published by OpenAI. Huh. And you know how there are these moments in technology that you will never forget. I will never forget when I first saw email on AOL. Uh -huh. That was my first email program. Yeah. Or then when I saw the first YouTube video, that was, I was like, oh my God, what do you mean? Yeah. Everybody can upload a video and everybody can watch it. And Dolly 2 is a little bit like that. So it's a compound name from Dolly the painter and then Wally the Disney movie. Oh, yeah. And what it is, is it's text to imaging. So you give Dolly 2 a sentence, uh -huh. koala bears riding a motorcycle, and it will create an image of a koala bear riding a motorcycle. And then you can say koala bear riding a motorcycle in the style of Andy Warhol or in the style of your favorite artist. And it will do that. Wow. The really remarkable thing is that it can not only do images that relate to a single term, it can really 
create these kinds of combinations, even combinations that don't really exist. I saw one application that said monkey paying taxes, uh -huh. and then it literally creates an image of a monkey that looks like it's sitting at a desk and That's it amazing. might as well pay taxes. These are images that it's creating. So they're not like looking for photographs of this thing. They're drawing the images and they're then they change the style. drawing the images, yes. Wow. But one really important application is also what they call in-painting. That is, you can take images and you can add something to the image. And on the Dolly 2 website, there is a fabulous example where you see a picture of an indoor swimming pool and the light comes in through the windows mm -hmm. and it creates really interesting effects on the water and the shadows that are thrown. And then you say, okay, so let me add a flamingo. And you decide where the flamingo goes in that image. Right. And then AI would add it. And what's really remarkable is the shadowing, the reflection oh, of the light, everything nice. is perfect. It's unbelievable. So the technology, I think, itself is an interesting story. But then, of course, OpenAI as an organization is really interesting. You remember they started out as a nonprofit organization. Yeah. Then I think maybe influenced by competing organizations like DeepMind that had these really deep pockets. They decided to then create this capped profit arm where hmm. big companies like Microsoft have invested a billion dollars to make advances possible. But the most unusual thing is their charter. It comes from a source of anxiety and concern that AI might actually do more harm than good in the end. And the organization is committed to releasing only products that will further humanity's interests. Interesting. And it's really controversial. Uh -huh. Its first product, I think, that you might have heard of was this GPT-1 and 2. This was good for college students. You give it a sentence, and then out of that sentence, it writes an entire essay. <laughs> Oh and it's God. really amazing. Yeah. And they demonstrated GP2, but did not make it available. Yeah. And the argument was, look, we have to be careful. We don't know. We need to study. And it got so much backlash. So some people said, well, this is just a publicity stunt. Yeah. You're claiming you do these amazing things, but no one can really test them because it's not public. And then others said, well, you were founded on this idea that you do the best things for humanity, you will always be open, you will always be transparent, and now what? Like, no openness, no transparency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. So it was super controversial, and Dolly 2 is a little similar in that you can go to the website and you can test all of these things, but it's not available. No one has access yet. Right. You can just imagine the enormous damage. So I can add you to any photo now, and it will be very, very difficult to see for the untrained eye. These are like the deep fake images that are like yeah, really hard exactly, to figure out. on steroids. Yeah. And so it's one of these stories where you think, oh my God, if that can be done in a reasonable and good way, everything changes. Yeah. You will have all of these images, all of these illustrations that we don't really have to think about. It's just a machine that does it. God, you know, I have to say, this story provokes so many different feelings in me. So I'm sure you saw this story about this Google engineer who conducted this conversation. Oh, yes, about the sentient. About their sentient AI person. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I confess these AI conversations, somehow I have one of two very sharply divergent reactions to it. One reaction is yours right now, which is, Oh my God, this is like incredible <laughs> what is happening. On the other hand, sometimes I'm like, 
really, who needs this and who cares? Oh, Especially yeah. with this kind of sentient conversation. Like, it seems so clear that he was talking himself into believing that someone was on the other side of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get why college students love this, but beyond that, why do I care about it? Mm -hmm. I am always really struck in this AI land of this completely polar reactions that it engenders in me. Either that it is completely scary and revolutionary and fantastic, or alternatively that it is like, why do I need these things? Yeah. Clearly with writing and some tasks, I could see it being really powerful. But I'm not sure otherwise. But this will be a fun one to watch. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. The stated purpose of OpenAI is to create artificial intelligence that is like human intelligence. That's where they want to go. Right. And what's really interesting about this is there are basically two camps in AI land. One camp, and this includes OpenAI, says we actually have all the tools that are needed to do this. Right. All that's missing is a clever combination of technology and then obviously insane amounts of computing power. But no real breakthrough is needed. We're almost there. Mm -hmm. In fact, they have a fun thing that they do at the office where they ask everyone, like, how long is it going to take until we get artificial intelligence that is of human quality? Where even that statement is totally unclear what it means. But in any case, and I think the average estimate is now 15 years. And it's like, maybe yes, maybe no, who knows? But the estimates are all over. And then there's a second camp, I think also really prominent, where people think, no, actually it will take a huge step change. Hmm. Even if we combine everything we have and we combine it with insane amounts of computing power, that's not going to be good enough to really mimic or surpass what humans can do. And what's totally fascinating is these are some of the smartest people on the yeah, planet. Yeah, disagree about and something no totally one, fundamental. Yeah, yeah, totally fundamental. No one really knows. Well, I'm sure we'll figure it out by the end of the summer. Yeah, <laughs> it's, sure, because, yeah. it's a good story to watch. Yeah. What do you have for us? So I've just been really getting intrigued by the prospect of what's happening in big tech. Hmm. Obviously, we've seen valuations come down really remarkably. Yeah. And yet we have founders who are relatively young who are still hanging around. And... I'm trying to think through how that shakes out over the next months and years. And you mean hang around as in they stay with their companies? Stay with their companies or they have a lot of wealth. Think about Bezos. Yeah. Think about Zuckerberg. He's still in the firm, but think about Bezos outside the firm. And think about that example times 300 in tech land. Mm -hmm. There's at least 300 companies like that. Yep. Much smaller, but still. So the thing I've been thinking a little bit about is Michael Dell. Okay. He left Dell. Then he came back. And he took it private, and then he built it up with a private equity partner after taking it private at rock-bottom prices, then ended up doing the largest LBO and buying a huge number of assets in a series of transformative acquisitions, including EMC and VMware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for some reason, that strikes me as a playbook for a bunch of folks when values come way down who have been sitting on the sideline and have a lot of founder wealth. Oh. They may want to get back in the game, use some private equity money, taking companies that they know private, and then doing interesting things with them. Yeah. It's a very inchoate idea, Felix. But I think when valuations collapse, you still have a lot of money on the sidelines and you have founders who really believe in these businesses and they have a lot of wealth. They could just go do the space thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> or they could look for a second act yeah. and 
Michael Dell is kind of the playbook for that. Yeah, that's super interesting. In particular, because you're thinking, I'm going back to a firm that I know really well because I have a better sense of what could be done. Michael Dell is the positive example. Howard Schultz now at Starbucks is maybe the not so great example of a founder going back and then essentially trying an old recipe Mm -hmm. that used to work but doesn't work so well under these circumstances. So I think it says something about the founder as a one-trick pony. You figured out something. Right. In that case, you probably want that founder to buy other companies. It would still be right that they would go back in, like go back and get into the game, but don't go back to where you came from because in all likelihood, that thing is not going to work anymore. But if you're really imaginative, if you have many different skills or maybe your view of where success comes from has changed, then maybe going back to your original place might actually be a really good idea. You mentioned something like a couple of months ago about why some of these companies are remaining together. Why does Amazon have AWS? (laughs) And Meta's kind of Meta division and the Facebook division, right? And one way this can play out is for a founder to specialize in one of those assets. So to kind of just say, I don't want the whole business, I want to do this other business. Think about, in a way, what Dorsey did, right? He got out of Twitter and into Block. And they go to the place where they are more interested where they see the future and then they double down on that as a second act. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of what Dell did too. These people are relatively young, valuations come in and you can decide, well, I want to kind of go do the space thing. Or you can say, I want a big second act on this part of the business that I really like. And then go, go, go and take it private, do different things, split businesses. It's kind of a radical suggestion, but when valuations come down really sharply and there's a lot of money on the sidelines still in different private forms, it feels like that's a recipe for people to do weird things that they might not have thought about before. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I think, a story to watch. See what happens to big tech. And what I like about it is, of course, many of these founders move to the role of investors. Right. And I always have a sense that some of what they did amazingly well getting people excited, building up companies, having novel insights. The role of an investor by its nature is more passive. If that's what you're really good at, are you really meant to be just an investor? Yeah. So I actually like the idea of these people getting back into the game and getting their hands dirty and getting engaged. So if that in fact happens, I think that would be wonderful, probably good for the economy as well. Right. Great. What else do you got, Felix? I have a closely related story, and you might remember in the whole conversation about the rise of income inequality, Hmm. at some point in time, we were much more specific about where does it actually come from? Why is it that economy-wide we see incomes of people diverge so much? And one of the really big discoveries and interesting realizations was that it's all driven by a fairly small set of industries. So this is for the United States. 90% of all industries have zero contribution to the increase in income inequality. Right, And it only happens at the very top in tech. So it's basically a technology story. And at the very bottom in both restaurants and in retail. 
And it's these two tails that are responsible for the rise in income inequality. Interesting. Now think about how that relates to the current macro situation. At the top, we now have the implosion of markets. Right. So there we get a big reduction. And I think at the bottom end, the story has sort of been the opposite. Wages are increasing very quickly. For many employees in the United States, inflation has eaten up almost all the wage gains that they have gotten. It's not true for the poorest paid workers. There, actually, the wage gains still are larger than inflation. So what this means is that I think at the end of this episode, we might actually see a dramatic reduction in earnings inequality. That's fascinating. I think it's already showing up in so many ways, Felix. So... I was talking to several people who were saying that the talent market at the high end in tech has become very flexible all of a sudden. So you're the CTO of a tech startup and your stock is now worthless, let's say, or a public company. It's gone down to 80% in value. You know, you're mobile now and you will be moved. And an older company that actually offers you a little stability that would have never been able to hire you a while ago, is now attractive. So there's a whole bunch of things that are happening at the top end of the labor market that we haven't seen happen for the last several years. It's fascinating how quickly these financial markets ripple into private markets, and then they ripple into talent markets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see it going all the way through, literally in the matter of months. And the hope is that both of these changes at the top and at the bottom will lead to people being in better jobs for them. Yeah. At the lower end, the job is not such a similar job, but I'm chasing better pay. And so as a result, I end up in businesses that can afford that better pay. Right. And right. so I should really work at the restaurant that flourishes and not at the restaurant that doesn't do so well. And at the top of the market, you don't have to worry so much about the disruption anyway, because it's not as though people are poor. Right. So they can easily finance some transition. But if all goes well, we might end up that many talented people actually work in places where they can make a bigger difference than they could have made before. That's great. I love that. That's a great thing to watch. People talk about the economy in a broad sense. But what's interesting about this story that you're highlighting for us is it takes it through firms and it takes it through labor markets and it takes it through to people's lives, which is really going to be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, and what we really care about. Yeah, exactly. What we really care about. All right, good. So we got stories to watch, Felix. Recommendations. What do you have for us, Mihir? Well, so I have found a little Italian restaurant that is sprouting up all over New York City that I have fallen in love with. Oh, okay. It's called La Pecora Bianca. And it's been around for five years, but they just had one location. And in the last 12 months, they have sprouted four new locations. Wow, okay. And it is fantastic. The food is simple Italian food. The price points are good. Pizza, pasta, main dishes. They are open from 7 a.m. to late at night. So they run like a really long day. You can get breakfast. You can get breakfast, lunch, and dinner there. The menu's the same, lunch and dinner. So it's not a fancy place, but really bright and clean. And the food is sharply flavored. I just think they got a great concept. When you walk into one of their places... It's just a happy, buzzy atmosphere. And the food is so reliable. That's amazing. So La Pecora Bianca is my pick if you're going to be in New York City. And I think they're going to be sprouting up all over the place. So, And the menu is the same all day long? 
Well, breakfast is different, but they have lunch oh, and dinner is basically the same. I was thinking spaghetti for breakfast. Well, was my secret hope. <laughs> there you go. They might go off menu for you, Felix. So La Picota Bianca is my fantastic. pick. That's fantastic. What do you have, Felix? I have a recommendation. Actually, that's a recommendation mostly for you. Oh my God. Remember your cry for help a little while ago? Yes. You got all of these suggestions, how to solve the problem of being connected when you travel abroad and your plan. And do you have a solution for me? So I have just discovered this really amazing app called Eralo. And essentially what it is, is it's eSIM cards. So if you have a phone that is not locked, you go to their website and they offer these really attractive data packages. And one click, you buy the package, and then you're good to go. There's no expensive and cumbersome switching of e-cards. Yeah. So for instance, for Spain, three gigabytes, everything is time limited. So this one was for 30 days, is sold at $7.50. Nice. So that sounds like a really good deal to me. And I thought, you might really like it as well. So I love this idea because the whole eSIM card thing, somebody has to make that a little bit simpler for everybody to use. Yeah. And it sounds like they've done that. So that sounds really good. Yes, How do you spell yeah. it? What's the name of it again? I don't know if I'm saying it exactly right. Aralo. So it's A-I-R-A-L-O.com. Nice. If you want to download the app. Okay, fantastic. Aralo. Yes. Perfect. Just in time again for summer travel. I like that, Felix. <laughs> I feel yes. also very special, like a personalized recommendation for I me, know, Felix. I know. God, I got to up my game. I got to... <laughs> Actually, I did want to mention a Mexican polka for you, Felix. <laughs> okay, yes. I'm in the mood for Mexican polka any day of the week. <laughs> Excellent. Good. So next week, we're back with our recommendations and maybe a special guest too, right? Yes, I think we will have lots of recommendations. We will have a very special dear guest. And then after hours, we'll take a summer break. Nice. So we will be talking to one another, but not online. And we hope to be back sometime in the early fall, in September or so. Sounds great. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you, Peter Linane, for managing our wonderful sound. Woohoo, Peter! And we will hear from you before too long. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.